Numbers 21. The Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the south, heard that Israel came by way of Atharim. He fought against Israel and took some of them captive. Israel vowed a vow to Yahweh and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hands, then I will utterly destroy their cities. Yahweh listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. The name of the place was called Hormah. They travelled from Mount Hor by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. The soul of the people was very discouraged because of the journey. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, there is no water, and our soul loathes this disgusting food. Yahweh sent venomous snakes among the people, and they bit the people. Many people of Israel died. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against Yahweh and against you. Pray to Yahweh that he take away the serpents from us. Moses prayed for the people. Yahweh said to Moses, Make a venomous snake and set it on a pole. It shall happen that everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. Moses made a serpent of bronze and set it on a pole. If a serpent had bitten any man, when he looked at the serpent of bronze, he lived. The children of Israel travelled and encamped in Oboth. They travelled from Oboth and encamped at Iyah Barim in the wilderness which is before Moab toward the sunrise. From there they travelled and encamped in the valley of Zered. From there they travelled and encamped on the other side of the Arnon, which is in the wilderness that comes out of the border of the Amorites. For the Arnon is the border of Moab, between Moab and the Amorites. Therefore it is said in the book of the wars of Yahweh, Vaheb in Sufar, the valleys of the Arnon. The slope of the valleys that incline towards the dwelling of Ar leans on the border of Moab. From there they travelled to Beer, that is the well of which Yahweh said to Moses, Gather the people together and I will give them water. Then Israel sang this song, Spring up, well, sing to it the well which the princes dug, which the nobles of the people dug, with the scepter and with their poles. From the wilderness they travelled to Matanah, and from Matanah to Nahaliel, and from Nahaliel to Barmouth, and from Barmouth to the valley that is in the field of Moab to the top of Pisgah, which looks down on the desert. Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn away into field or vineyard. We will not drink of the water of the wells. We will go down the king's highway until we have passed your border. Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his border, but Sihon gathered all his people together and went out against Israel into the wilderness and came to Jahaz. He fought against Israel. Israel struck him with the edge of the sword and possessed his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, even to the children of Ammon, for the border of the children of Ammon was fortified. Israel took all these cities. Israel lived in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon and in all of its villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and taken all his land out of his hand, even to the Arnon. Therefore, 
Those who speak in Proverbs say, Come to Heshbon, let the city of Sihon be built and established. For a fire has gone out of Heshbon, a flame from the city of Sihon. It had devoured Ar of Moab, the lords of the high places of the Arnon. Woe to you, Moab! You are undone, people of Chemosh. He has given his sons as fugitives and his daughters into captivity to Sihon, king of the Amorites. We have shot at them. Heshbon has perished even to Dibon. We have laid waste even to Nophar, which reaches to Medeba. Thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites. Moses sent to spy out Jazir. They took its villages and drove out the Amorites who were there. They turned up and went up by the way of Bashan. Og the king of Bashan went out against them, he and all his people, to battle at Edrei. Yahweh said to Moses, Don't fear him, for I have delivered him into your hand, with all his people and his land. You shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So they struck him with his sons and all his people until there were no survivors, and they possessed the land. Whoops. Rather than going straight into Canaan, which they could have done if the Edomites had let them, they went around the back. They went around to the right side and they tried to come in from the east. Now, it didn't matter which way you went, there was always going to be a nation there and they, they requested permission from Sihon, the king of the Amorites, to let them in. And uh, he refused. And um, earlier I said that when the Edomites didn't let them go through the easy way, it felt like a big setback. And so they were, they're traveling. They're traveling to go around to the east. So if you know your Middle Eastern geography, they're, uh, they're traveling um, eastwards, going underneath the Dead Sea to the right, and then, then they're going to come up from the right, and then they're going to come in um, to the, you know, the Promised Land, heading westward. And, um, but as they're traveling in the desert, the people start complaining. And they say, you know, we don't have any bread to eat, we don't have any water to drink, and they're complaining against Moses again. Now, I thought this was a bit odd because there's manna coming from the sky every day, and in my mind, this manna, it's the bread from heaven. But no, that same complaint, if we went back and reread it, it says, all we have is this disgusting food to eat. They basically think that manna is disgusting because they're sick of it and they want real bread. And I guess the way I interpreted this is, if they had gone straight into the promised land through Edom, if they had gone straight in, they'd immediately have been surrounded by fields of wheat, fields of corn, fields of barley. They could have taken, you know, immediately started conquering and immediately had normal food, <laughs> pomegranates and things, you know, because all the food is there. But no, because they're going the long way, um, people are, are disappointed, you know, got to keep eating this manna. I understand it. I remembered seeing one of these reality TV shows about a, a family that lived on the prairies in, in you know North America. Now they, they were reenacting what it was like to live on the prairies in a log cabin and this boy in there, he um, couldn't wait for the train to arrive. Now this was a simulated train, you know, because they could have, in reality, walked off the set, hopped into a car and gone anywhere to any shop and bought themselves anything. But in the show, 
this boy said, I can't wait for the train to arrive because I'm gonna get an orange. He was so looking forward to this one piece of fruit because <laughs> it was sweet and all, all he had to eat all the time was just wheat. And I understand it, like you, if you imagine all you had every day was something like say rice, rice for breakfast, rice, rice for lunch, rice for dinner, that's all you had, no flavorings, no curries, no spices, it's just rice. And then you knew that in a few weeks you were gonna get something delicious like an orange, that would be something to really look forward to. And then if you found out that, oh, I'm not gonna get it now for three more months, not very many people wouldn't complain. They're definitely complaining here. And so, but the Lord's had enough of their complaining and he sends venomous snakes into the midst. And people are getting bitten and they're dying. And then, of course, there's a plague. There's venomous snakes everywhere. The Lord says to Moses to set up a snake on a pole and anyone who looks at it will live. Now, right here, we've got the picture. This is the most obvious picture of Christ in the whole book of Numbers. There are a lot of pictures of Christ in the book of Numbers. There's heaps of them. In the last chapter, we talked about Moses speaking to the rock. Well, that was a picture of Christ. The rock was Christ. We're supposed to speak to Christ in Christ's name, and we'll find that things change in our life. A few chapters before that, there was the red heifer, which was a picture of Christ. Well, everywhere we go through Numbers, there are pictures of Christ, just like all the way through the Old Testament. But here we have the picture of Christ that most people recognize in the book of Numbers. And the reason we recognize it is because it's something that's lifted up on a pole. And when it, you know, this snake was on a pole, and when the children of Israel looked at it, they lived. And that's exactly what happens with Christ. Jesus is nailed to the cross and lifted up. And when we look at Christ with faith, we live, we have eternal life. And Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter three, and he says to him, he says, just as the snake was lifted up in the wilderness, so the son of man will be lifted up. So Jesus himself points right back to this picture of the snake in the desert and says, you know, that's a picture of me. And today, if you go to any hospital, pretty much in the world, you're gonna find nurses and doctors and they have in Australia at least, they have a little logo of a snake on a pole. Have you ever noticed? It's, it's a medical symbol, and it's a symbol of healing. Comes right here out of Numbers chapter 21, but it's actually a picture of Christ. And every time you go to a hospital and a doc, or you see doctors and nurses and they have that picture of, of the snake on the pole, they're proclaiming Christ all around the world, millions of them every day it's christ being proclaimed and they have no idea most of them now someone has asked including me uh, i wondered about this i thought how is a snake a picture of christ <laughs> because jesus is definitely no snake and if you know your bible you know that the snake's a picture of the devil and you'd say well why is a snake here being used to symbolize christ and the answer is real simple when we died uh, when, when we sinned, we died. It was because of the snake that we sinned and we died. But our sin was placed onto Christ. And the schemes of Satan and the sin that he brought about, they were nailed to the cross. Yes, Jesus was nailed to the cross, but our sin was nailed to the cross in Christ. And the schemes of Satan were nailed to the cross in Christ. And in, in doing so, they were done away with. 
And so we have this, in this symbol, we have a, a picture of Christ being lifted up on our behalf, but also the schemes of Satan being nailed to the cross and being done away with, producing our healing and producing our life. So it's fascinating. And I'd say this is the key symbol of Christ in the whole book of Numbers, although there are many of them. Later on in the, in the Old Testament, in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4, it mentions that this bronze snake was actually in the temple. Somehow, or through all these years, that snake had been preserved. Um, one Bible commentator said, you know, where was the snake kept all these years? <laughs> he said, was it kept in Moses' tent? Uh, I have no idea where it was kept. But it, it appears in the Bible 700 years later and King Hezekiah realizes that the people of Israel are worship, or the people of Judah are worshiping this thing instead of worshiping God. So it's become an object of idolatry. So he destroys it. Fair enough. But I think it's interesting that for 700 years, from, the, from this story right here in Numbers 21, all the way through to 2 Kings 18, that this was a symbol of Christ to all the Israelites, and they didn't even know. And even today, all around the world, this, this thing is a symbol of Christ in hospitals, and doctors and medical surgeries, studios, and all around the world. Nurses are wearing it on their uniforms. It's a symbol of Christ just everywhere, even to this very day. Now that story, that happened on the way, because Edom wouldn't let them in, on the way going around to the east. And they go and they encounter King Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and he also won't let them go through. And so they end up having no choice to, um, well, in fact, he attacks them. They ask for, for permission to go through. He says no, and he attacks. So they're forced into a conflict, which they win. And there's a book that gets mentioned. It's, it's um, let me find it for you. Oh, here we go. Um, I think it's the book, of the, the, the book of the War or something like that. I, sorry, I, I put down my... Um, my Bible chapter. But it's interesting that all the way through the Old Testament we find references to books that are no longer in existence. And um, these are books that existed at the time. And um, where are we? I'm going to find it for you because I, I want you to hear the name of this book. It's called, this is verse 14, the book of the wars of Yahweh. Or in English, we would say the book of the wars of God. In other words, this is God's battle. So there was a book that existed that was called that. We have no idea what's in it. But there were, there were numbers of ancient books. There were other ancient books mentioned in the Bible, like the book of Joshua. We don't know where they are. But I, I believe that some of these books are going to appear and they're going to make fools of people who say that the Bible's not true. And even today, to this very day, there are people, scholars and archaeologists and people who say, oh, the, Bible not, the Bible's not true. But more and more, every year, things get dug up that prove the Bible true. And, and just in the 1940s was this incredible Dead Sea Scrolls discovery, 900 ancient documents. Some of them were the oldest Bible copies that we've ever had, like the Isaiah Scroll. One scroll, the copy of the Leviticus scroll, was written in the ancient Paleo alphabet of Hebrew. Hebrew has multiple different alphabets. It's written in the old, old Paleo alphabet. 
these are some incredible books, but they also discovered other books like the, the War Scroll, the Community Scroll. Um, interesting documents were discovered and I always, I always have a feeling, I can't prove this, but I have a feeling that God, you know, he knows where all these things are in the world. They're hidden, you know, they're in caves or they're, they're buried in the ground and God just waits for the perfect time <laughs> to poof, let's let that one get discovered. And um, scholars, you know, they think they're so smart. And, but the, you know what the Lord said? He says that he has hidden his, his ways from the wise, but revealed them to the foolish. <laughs> and it's no wonder that children, you know, they just believe what God says. And scholars, you know, oh, can't be true, can't be true. And God just reaches down and just whoop, releases the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, 900 ancient documents discovered. And then suddenly all these scholars, you know, have egg on their face. Oh, we were wrong. It's, it's incredible. And uh, I was reading about this bloke called Bultman, and he, um, he was in, in the, the 1930s, was saying that the Gospel of John was not a historical document, you know, the, that it, it was a, a Gnostic document. And he had all these opinions. And then the, they discovered in 1946 this thing called the Nag Hammadi Library in Egypt. And it was all these actual documents that were Gnostic documents. And when they discovered them, they realized that the Gospel of John was nothing like what true Gnosticism was like, and it just put egg all over that bloke's face. You know, he, he was such a, supposedly, such a great scholar that understood the book of John, and well, turned out he was completely wrong. And there were so many so-called experts that want to just, you know, have a theory and be get a name for themselves, but in the end, there's something that's to be said for just trusting the Lord. And um, it really is a childlike faith. So the children of Israel, they travel around, they come into conflict with Sihon, king of the Amorites, and they profoundly defeat him. Then they go further north to Bashan, and they profoundly defeat Og, the king of Bashan, and they conquer the huge big chunk of the eastern side of the Jordan River. Today, Bashan is in the modern country of Syria, the Golan Heights, you may have heard of that. Um, the Amorites, um, this is we're talking of the Sihon's territory, was in the modern country of Jordan. And the Ammonites, which you may, may have heard of, that's also in the country of Jordan. In fact, the capital of Jordan is called Amman, which is from the Ammonites. So all these areas, these are parts of land that Israel conquered in the end of this chapter. And in Psalm 136, there's one of the most repetitive Psalms in the entire Bible. Every second line says his love is everlasting, you know? And um, it'd be great to actually sing it in church sometime, but in verses 19 and 20, it, it says that they defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, his love is everlasting. And Og, the king of Bashan, his love is everlasting. So these two kings, for some reason, their defeat has been immortalized in the Psalms, even though some of the other kings they defeated were not remembered. So it's been a big chapter, and thanks for hanging in with me as we talk about the snake on the pole. And there's a lot of things you could say, and I um, want to say a lot more sometimes. But I find that the Old Testament is so rich. And you know in the New Testament there's this passage in, in Luke where Jesus is walking with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And um, it says to them that Jesus showed to them everywhere in the scriptures from the law and the prophets himself. You know, he showed himself to them from the law and the prophets. 
And you know, it was like their eyes were open and they suddenly could see Jesus. Well, that's what we did a little bit of today. I showed you a little bit of Jesus in the law. We're not in the prophets today, but all the way through the law, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Jesus appears over and over and over again. And uh, it's just amazing. Once you start looking for him, there he is. He is our God. Lord, thank you that you are our God. Thank you that you gave us this symbol of the snake on a pole. You showed us that the devil and his schemes and sin along with it were nailed to the cross and they were taken away by Christ. I thank you that, Lord, in this place we're given healing. I thank you, Lord, that, you're, that there is a witness of Christ all around the world today in millions of places. In, um, everywhere there's doctors and nurses. I thank you, Lord, you have not left yourself without a witness. And I pray, Lord, that, that your healing power would be at work in our lives and that we would become more like Christ. I pray your healing power would work through us to others and the mercy of Christ be extended to them too, just as it was to us. In Jesus' name, amen.